Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. On the first day of my vacation, I get three phone calls. The first call for my manager of the day quitting on me. So months and months of training down the drain. Second, from my supplier telling me that they no longer want to do business with me. So I have to start all over again. And third, from my accountant telling me that someone had filed a fake tax return in my name, had stolen my identity, and I was going to have to deal with that mess when I got back. So I went from this unbelievable high to this 20, 21-year-old entrepreneur crushing it to let's start all over again. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Nathan Hirsch. He is a location-independent entrepreneur and the co-founder and CEO of FreeUp, which connects businesses with pre-vetted virtual assistants and freelancers. Nathan founded FreeUp in 2015 at age 27 with just $5,000, and he subsequently bootstrapped and scaled the business to $9 million in annual revenue in just three years. Nathan has been an entrepreneur for a total of 10 years, having founded his first online business with just $20 out of his college dorm room buying and selling student textbooks. He rapidly expanded and scaled that business into a multi-million dollar e-commerce company and proceeded to sell over $25 million on Amazon over a six-year period while serving over 10,000 customers. His primary business challenge during that period was that it took him way too long to find talent, so he founded FreeUp to address his own frustrations. And today, FreeUp receives hundreds of applications each week from freelancers and virtual assistants each of whom are rigorously interviewed and vetted and only the top 1% based on skill, attitude, and communication are made available to free ups thousands of business customers all over the world. With over 3,000 rigorously vetted freelancers now on the platform, FreeUp provides all of its business clients with a no turnover guarantee 
covering replacement costs if a freelancer ever quits, along with 24-7 customer service. Nathan runs his business completely remotely, and he's also an avid traveler. Nathan, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I am so happy to have you on the show, my man. We have been trying to put this interview together for quite some time, so I'm super excited that we finally nailed it down. I am doing this interview today from West Africa. I'm in Lagos, Nigeria. And where are you? Wow, I did not know that. That's awesome. I'm in Orlando, Florida. Awesome. But you're headed where next week? Yes, I'm actually going to Vegas for a few days to go to one of my partner's parties. And then I'm heading off to Croatia for Baby Bathwater, who I don't know if you ever heard of them. They put on these high level entrepreneur events and they rent out an island. So it should be pretty fun. That's awesome. I have been to Croatia and it's a super amazing place and you're going at an amazing time of year. So I know you're going to have a great time. So let's get into this interview. I want to start off by asking what were your entrepreneurial tendencies at an early age? When you were growing up, when did you realize that you were an entrepreneur or that you wanted to explore becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I'll kind of paint the picture. My parents were both teachers growing up. So I always grew up with that mentality that I was going to go to school, get a real job, work for 30 years, retire, and that was going to be my life. And if you fast forward to their life, they're retired now. They're traveling the world. They, they live a great life. They've had a great career and there's nothing wrong with that. But I knew at a young age that that wasn't for me. Now, my dad taught in the town next to me. I lived in East Long Meadow, my dad went, taught in Longmeadow and Longmeadow had a better school system. So I got to go to school over there. And the thing about Longmeadow is all the kids, their parents were doctors, lawyers, dentists, big business owners. They had big houses, big cars, every video game system you can imagine. And we weren't poor by any means. We were middle class. That's what East Longmeadow was. It was a town full of middle class people. But every day I would go to school with people who in my mind had everything. So at the time, money was a big factor. I always wanted what I couldn't have. My parents wouldn't buy me the latest video game. We didn't have the nice cars. Our, our trips, our vacations were traveling in a tent when people were going to five-star hotels. So there was that factor. And it was never more evident than during the summer vacations. From Whenever I was legally allowed to work, 14, 15, 16, whatever it was, my parents made me get a summer job. I was working 40, 50 hours a week every summer, every break, every time that I could, well, all my friends were outside playing and enjoying the summer. And I learned a ton about sales, about customer service, about marketing and managing people. But I also learned that I just hated working for other people. I was watching the clock every day. And I've always just been a rebel against authority. I think part of it was just to rebel against my, my parents that were teachers who, who I love and they were very supportive, but I, ne I never got along with teachers growing up. I never liked people telling me what to do. I wanted to do it my way. I didn't want to have to follow someone else's directions or, or someone else's rules. And obviously when you get a job that you have to do that, you don't have any other option. So when I got to college, I kind of looked at college as a ticking clock. I had four years to figure out how to start a business or else I was going to go into the real world, have bills and responsibilities and have to get a job. And once you go down that path, it's really hard to get out. So that was really my mentality going into college. Wow, that is really interesting. So you went into college with the mentality that you had to figure out how to start a business before you got out of college. That is incredible. So from there, what did you do? What were your next steps? 
So I made a few thousand dollars every summer um, doing the internships. I worked at Firestone and Aaron's and I got pissed off at the bookstore one day because I bought this textbook for hundreds of dollars. They were offering me pennies on the dollar. And I said, you know what? I can do this myself. So I created a textbook business. At the end of every semester, I would buy people's textbooks using that summer money. And I would store it in my car, in my dorm room, in my garage at home. I would drive them from Connecticut to back to Massachusetts and organize them. And at the beginning of the semester, I would sell the books back to the students, but I would also sell them online a little bit. And that was my first glimpse into being an entrepreneur. I made pretty good money, pretty good margins. I created a referral program. So people started talking about me. And before I knew it, I had lines out the door of people trying to sell me their books to the point where I actually got a cease and desist letter from my college telling me to knock it off because I was competing with the school bookstore too much. Wow. And now how early was this in your college career? This was end of freshman year, early sophomore year. Okay. So you got the cease and desist letter and you realized that you were able to create an overwhelming amount of demand. So what was your next move? How did you parlay that and harness that demand you created? So I had sold these books on these different distributor websites. And one of those websites was amazon.com. Now this was 2008, 2009. No one knew what Amazon was. It was kind of this big bookstore that was just getting into other stuff. I thought it was so cool that I could have a 24-7 storefront and I just had to figure out what products to sell. And I looked at my situation. I couldn't sell books anymore. I didn't want to get kicked out of college. My parents were both teachers. That wasn't really an option. And I didn't have much money. I couldn't buy inventory. I didn't have any place to store the inventory. Even if I bought it, I couldn't store that much in my dorm room. And I came up with the concept of really dropshipping before it was even called dropshipping. I didn't even know it was called dropshipping till three years later. I thought, hey, I have this storefront. I'm pretty good at getting products to sell once I get them on this storefront. What if I could build relationships with vendors that would ship the product for me to the customer? I would mark it up. I'd sell it for more. I'd make the difference between what I sold it for and what I bought it from. And then I just had to figure out what products to sell and what vendors to partner with. So I started experimenting with uh, outdoor products, video games, computers, typical college guy stuff. And I tried all these deal sites, all these different websites, trying to get them to dropship for me. And I just failed over and over and over. The only thing I could get to sell were these books. And it wasn't until I branched out of my comfort zone and came across this deal on baby products that I started to finally get sales and build relationships with baby product vendors. <laughs> so if you can imagine me as a 20-year-old single college guy selling baby products on Amazon, that was my business. And people thought I was crazy. I, I remember I would sit in the back of class just listing baby products. Girls behind me would give me the weirdest looks. And that was how I took my business off the ground. But I mean, I sold a million dollars within the first year or so. The baby product business really took off. Wow. A million dollars in baby products in a single year. That is definitely impressive. So why was that particular product niche working better than the other product tests that you did, do you think? And what did you learn from that? What were your next moves then based on your lessons to scale the business after that? Good question. So there was kind of two sides of it. There was the logical side of it. I've always been a, a very logical person. And then there was the unknown, the trial and error side of it, because there were no courses, there were no gurus, there was no Amazon software to find profitable products like, like there is now. So the logical part of me said, 
okay, I, I can't take too much risk. If I'm selling $2,000 products and there's a return, there's an issue, well, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble if I have to refund $2,000. In addition, what has the least chance of, of breaking? Probably a lighter product, something that's not too heavy. And then just minimizing risk. What, what is that price point? I, I can't make a lot of money on a $3 product if Amazon's taking their fee as well. So I have to kind of find that range. And I kind of found that sweet spot of two to 50, maybe two to 100 if it was a really good product, not light, obviously nothing that would cause damage or hold me liable in any way. And then the flip side of it was just trial and error, list everything on Amazon, see what would work, see what what people would buy. And I think the baby product is just a fascinating industry because when people are going to have a baby, they're going to buy products for their baby. There's there's no way around it. Mothers are going to overspend. They, they want the best for their baby. And I got in before a lot of those big baby brands got on Amazon. So it, it, it was timing. It was the, the logic behind it. And it was a lot of trial and error. And my parents tell me I should probably start paying taxes. So I meet with an accountant. And the first question he asked me is, when are you going to hire your first person? At the time, I'm doing everything. I'm listing every product. I'm filling every order. I'm responding to every email. I'm adjusting inventory. If something goes out of stock with my, one of my vendors, I'm taking it down off Amazon. And I go to the account. I go, why would I do that? That's money out of my pocket. I love Amazon. It's addicting. I can do this seven days a week forever. If I teach someone, they're going to steal my ideas. They're going to start a competing business. Like, I want to do this myself. And he just laughed in my face. <laughs> and he said, you're going to learn this lesson on your own. Sure enough, my first fourth quarter comes around, end of the year, and I'm not prepared at all. I get destroyed. I'm working 20 hours a day. My social life is gone. My grades plummet. And I somehow make it through to January because I'm a hard worker. This was my baby. I wasn't going to let my business die. And I get to January and I think to myself, I can never let that happen again. I need to start hiring people. I'm burnt out. I can't answer any more customer service emails. So I know nothing about hiring. I post a job on Facebook. And this guy in my business law class, who I maybe talked to once or twice, says, I don't know what you do. I need a job. I don't even interview him. I just say you're hired. Ends up being an amazing hire. He's hardworking. He takes stuff off my plate. He brings a lot to the table. He's doing stuff that, that I didn't even want to do. And I end up laying down the line, making him the business partner of my Amazon business. His name's Connor Gillivan, and he's the co-owner of Free Up right now. We've been working together for eight, nine years, whatever it is. So I hit jackpot right from the beginning. Luckiest thing in the world, make this amazing hire. And there I am as this punk 20, 21-year-old thinking, man, this hiring thing is easy. You post a job online, someone shows up, you hire them, you make more money, your life becomes easier. And I just proceed to make bad hire after bad hire after bad hire, quickly learning that college kids were much more into drinking and smoking weed than they were into running my Amazon business. And no 30-year-old took me seriously. I mean, I didn't even take myself seriously. I didn't know what I was doing. And it was really tough to hire. And that's really when I had to venture into the remote hiring world really by necessity in order to get the manpower that I needed to, to scale my business. So at that time, what was your hiring process like? After you made your first hire and it was successful, what were your next moves? Did you create job descriptions for different roles and go onto freelancer sites and try to hire people for them? What was the process like and what did you learn from that experience? 
Yeah. So we had made all these bad hires and we, we did come up with a very rough draft of a process. And it, we really looked at why were these hires so bad? And the biggest thing at the time was no one cared about the business. It wasn't their top priority. They were kind of just doing it on the side to, to make it on that little extra money, but they didn't really need the money. So our mentality was we are only going to hire people that are struggling and broke and that need the Amazon business as much as we want the Amazon business, as much as we need the Amazon business. That was our mentality. We're like, if we hire people that are hungry, that need this, that if we fire them, they're going to be miserable and upset and not be able to, to pay their bills. That was how we were going to get high quality people because that's what Connor was at the time. He was a broke college kid who really needed that job. And that, that did okay. I mean, it definitely avoided some of the people that we shouldn't have hired to begin with. But yeah, we, we would post a job. We would interview people. We would, it was a, a lot of trial and error. And we, we still didn't really know what we were going to get. It was kind of crossing your fingers. And when you're dealing with, with people remote, and, and I remember the first time I talked to someone in the Philippines for the first time, and her name was Chicky Ann, and she's still with me today. She was actually my second hire, but the first one didn't last very long. It was pretty much me asking feedback. Like, what, what can I do to get the best Filipino virtual assistant? And not only that, but what can I do to keep them around? Because they were disappearing on me. They didn't want to be there. And it, it was a, a rough process to get through. And she was the one that actually sat me down and said, Nate, you're direct. You're way too direct. You can't talk to people in the Philippines like that. They're too emotional. You need to bond with them. You need to have a connection. You need to treat them like their family, which is funny because it's the exact opposite of the two internships that I had, where the boss was over the shoulders, micromanaging, direct, always would talk down to you. And that was really the only real life job experience I've ever had. So I almost based my entire management mentality off of those two managers I had way back in the day. And so what were the biggest lessons that you took away for that, both in terms of your approach to hiring and your approach to management and ultimately your approach to building a company culture. Yeah. So at, at, down the line, we realized that hiring just for skill doesn't work. <laughs> you get someone that has a five-star review. They've got a great resume. They've got years of experience. And three months later, it blows up in your face and you're there wondering, how did that happen? This person was so good. He was so talented. And we realized that skill was just one part of the equation. And the other two parts are attitude and communication. So for attitude, we realized that we wanted people that were passionate about what they do. If, if we hated bookkeeping, which we did, we need to find someone that loved bookkeeping as much as we love being an entrepreneur. We wanted people that the second something didn't go their way, they didn't get aggressive. They didn't disappear. They could have a conversation and talk it out and get on the same page. We wanted people who could take feedback and not take it personally. Obviously, people that get along with the other people around them and didn't cause drama that wasted our time. So over time, we started to develop, hey, we need to start vetting people for attitude. We need to start looking for red flags. What is this person telling us during the interview that shows they might not have the right attitude that we want in our business? Now, the flip side of that is communication or the third part. Communication, we realized, was everything, especially when we were dealing with people remote. I mean, it didn't matter what their attitude was or what their skew was. If we couldn't communicate with them, if we were going in circles, if they couldn't hit deadlines, if, if they would disappear or not tell us when a personal issue or emergency came up, 
that was causing some huge stalling in our business. So we really focused on the trifecta of skill, attitude, and communication. You needed all three at a very high level. And any signs of not having that, we didn't want to work with you. And the interview process that we use on FreeUp to get on our platform is really just the interview process from our Amazon business that got better and better and better each year until we got to year five, six, seven, where we were, when someone got out the other side of the interview process, we were very confident they were going to be a good fit and stick around. So once you make the hire, can you talk about your process for onboarding your staff and integrating them into the company culture and ultimately also the particularly remote management as you are managing a distributed team across different time zones? Yeah. So I mentioned before that I kind of had this rugged management style. I was firm. I was direct. It it was almost like we had this good cop, bad cop thing going between Connor and I, where Connor was the one that everyone could talk to and open up to and and be the, the face of the culture. And I was the one who could build the processes for the business and make the tough decisions and, and be direct. So for a while, the onboarding process was talk to Connor and Connor would learn about you, learn about your family, get to know you on a personal level. So you felt comfortable with him. Um, And then once they got into that and they could see, okay, there's someone that owns the company that actually cares about them, then they would go to me (laughs) and I would jump in and I would say, hey, here's your task. Here's your roles and responsibilities. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. This is success. This is failure. And I was the one to go to with the actual business processes And he was the one to go to if they had an issue or any drama or anything like that, because I just didn't want to deal with it. And it got to the point where our turnover was pretty high. I mean, it was probably around 50, 45 percent ish. And Connor sat down with me and he said, you you need to figure this out, man. We can't do this good cop, bad cop thing anymore. And, And he really challenged me. So what ended up happening was we had this same person quit for the same role that three other people had quit for. And it was frustrating. It had cost us a ton of time, a ton of money. And I sat down with that person right before they left. And I said, Hey, will you do an exit interview with me? And I don't know if you've ever done an exit interview, but it is extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) You sit across the table from someone else and they're pissed at you. You're mad at them for wasting your time, your money. But Connor really challenged me to do this. And I I really just said, hey, can you tell me why you're quitting? And this guy hit me to the core. He told me everything that was wrong with my management style, with my leadership, with with the culture in the business that was because of me, with our hiring process, everything that was wrong with specific people in the company. He hit me in the core and it hurt a lot. But I should have written that guy a check right there because that information was gold. I mean, it it saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars down the line. And it it really was a a self-reflection point, a turning point for me as a manager and as a leader that if I was going to keep going down that path, no one wanted to work for me. It was going to be really impossible to scale the business past a certain level. So I really took that feedback seriously. And one of the last things he said to me before he quit was, You know, this is the first time in whatever, how long he had been with the company, six months, whatever it was, that I had asked him for feedback. And that was a a real eye-opener for me. So the way that I changed my management style was I would ask everyone for feedback pretty consistently, even to the point now where I think some of my VAs are, are like, Nate, you don't have to keep asking for feedback. But 
I want that information because that information helps me communicate better, helps me be a better manager, helps me lead better and, and keep people around. And I mean, our turnover now is less than, than 5%. So that was really the turning point for me is how do I go from this manager who just talks down to people, who's the bad cop, who only talks business and doesn't care about culture, but I have Connor there to handle that, to how can Connor and I manage and build the culture together and lead people? And I mean, it, it was simple stuff. There's simple stuff like greeting people and asking people how their day goes, but there's other stuff like how you run a meeting and making people feel like they own the actual projects and they're, they're not doing it for me, they're, they're doing it for them and how we assign tasks, how we communicate in meetings, especially with people internationally that a, a, a certain way you say something might be interpreted differently. So that was really how I shifted my mindset to be a better manager and a better leader. And can you talk about some of the actual tactical management communication techniques and processes for project management and so forth when you're running a large distributed team? Yeah. So we keep it really simple. We've got three communication channels. You got email, you got Skype, you got Viber and WhatsApp. And everyone knows what the communication channels are for. Email is for something that's not urgent. Maybe it's an update, a process change. Maybe I'm sending someone information about a client on free up back then. It was about uh, maybe an angry customer, something, something that they can check their email. And if they get it done by the end of the day, it's good. Then you've got more of the, the day to day stuff on Skype. I've used Skype for years. We have group chats now where it's, Hey, here's our, our billing team. Here's our customer service team. Here's our social media team. And once a week we meet in that chat and anything relative to that chat goes in there. If someone has a social media idea, it goes in there. If we have an update for, hey, we want to change this image right now, it goes in there. So if someone's actually working, if they're on shift, if they're if they're online, they need to be active in that Skype chat so we can communicate with them. Whereas the email is something that they can check later. And then the Viber and the WhatsApp is strictly for emergencies only. If our software crashes, we need to be able to get a hold of our developers. But if it's not an emergency, we stay away from bothering people on their phone. And then we use Trello and Jira. So Jira for developers, um, Trello for projects. And we break it down between day-to-day tasks that have to get done, short-term projects that need to get done in the next week or so, and then long-term projects. So stuff that needs to get done in the next month, in the next quarter. And I, I, I really like practicing what I preach that you can run a very large remote team just using the free software that I just mentioned. I mean, I have 45 virtual assistants in the Philippines. I've got 20 freelancers that do stuff like our blogs and our Facebook ads. And, and all of that is managed just using those free tools. And it's the same tools I use for my Amazon business way back in the day. Awesome. And now let's talk about FreeUp. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to start that company, what the origins were and how it evolved? Yeah. So with the Amazon business, we got to a point where we were doing over $5 million a year, which was great. But then the courses, the gurus, all, all the, the market got very saturated and we we're still making money. Maybe we were hovering, maybe one year we do 3 million, next year we do 2.5, but we weren't selling our own product. We weren't passionate about the brand. We didn't own any patents and we were kind of just going in circles with Amazon. They would change the rule. We would have to adapt to that rule. We weren't really building anything. And throughout this process, we had built this really good Rolodex of freelancers, of virtual assistants that we knew we can count on. But with e-commerce, 
you kind of go in waves. And, and this was before Prime Day. So during the summers, it was pretty dead. The During the, the fourth quarter, people were shopping a lot. So we needed more people. And then come January, you would not need as many hours from different freelancers. So we had people for customer service, for listing, for graphic design. And we knew how much of a pain it was to find these really good people. Talking to other Amazon sellers, they had that exact same pain point. It was, it was tough. It, if they needed someone to list a product, it might take them two weeks when they needed someone today. So we came up with the idea of FreeUp, where if, if someone needed someone, they could pick someone from our Rolodex. They would shoot us an email saying, hey, I need this. We would introduce them. And we started FreeUp with around $5,000. We invested that in this minimum viable product software. The, the freelancers could clock in, the freelancer could clock out, the clients could log in on their side and see the freelancer on their account and their hours. And that was it. There was nothing else in the software, no affiliates, no ticketing system. People would email me their requests or Facebook message me their requests. But it became a hit pretty quick. When people needed something, they got it fast. They liked the talent that they were getting. And we used that initial money to invest more and more in the software. And what ended up happening was, we created a referral program, which was one of the best business decisions we ever made, where you would get 50 cents for every hour that we build to someone that you told about us forever. So with these people that had used us, and luckily our initial 10, 20 clients really liked us, they started telling everyone. I remember the first time that, that I really thought we had something was when someone messaged me on Facebook and they said, hey, I was in a conference in China and people were talking about free up <laughs> and we had never done any marketing. So that was how we got off the ground. And within a year, year and a half, we had surpassed our Amazon sales. And with Amazon, we'd kind of done the same thing for eight years. We didn't really see like we were going anywhere. So it was a pretty easy decision to, to focus on free up. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to grow our brand. We wanted to see how far we can push this thing, really invest in the software, eventually invest in marketing. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I wanna offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Getting and working with different influencers and that's how we got it off the ground. I'm wondering if you can talk now about your scaling process. When you scale a company from $5,000 to a $9 million annual revenue in just three years, that is a really rapid scaling process. And I'm wondering if you could talk from the business side, just in terms of some of the techniques like cash flow management, for example, when you're scaling a company at that speed, what are some of the tactics that you use to scale so quickly? 
Yeah, so I've I've created two businesses, right? Both of them are cash flow positive at all times, which is a very unique thing to, to be. With the Amazon business, we were selling products that we didn't actually store. We would only buy the product after we sold it. So we would get the money up front, buy the product, send it to the customer, and we would always be cash flow positive. There was no situation where we owed someone money or, or anything like that. And with FreeUp, it's, it's the same thing. Our billing periods are Wednesday to Tuesday. We charge clients on Thursday. And then we don't pay the freelancers until the next Thursday. So again, very cash flow positive. So it does open up some opportunities, but we also run a very lean business. We didn't go out there and, and invest a, a ton in Facebook ads or, or a ton in software. Everything is slowly graduating. We we look at how much money did we make last month? How much do we want to invest back into different pieces of the business? And we keep it as lean as possible. We didn't buy any business cards. We didn't buy any shirts. No, no extra expenses for the first year and a half. We didn't even spend money on marketing for the first year and a half. We grew our business with using three things. We're talking about free up now. The first was the referral program that I mentioned. Within the first year, we had paid out something like $100,000 in referral money, which is a lot of 50 cents. Um, last year, we paid out about 300000 So referral program, easy way to, to get people to talk about us, to refer people to us. We put on our website, every phone call we would have with the client, we would always end it talking about our referral program. So that's one. Two was podcasts. I've been on over 150 podcasts. For the most part, they don't cost anything and you get in front of thousands of people at the same time. So we targeted business podcasts. We had a cool story that I just shared about me starting this business in college. And that just got us well known by lots of different people without us having to run Facebook ads or Google ads or anything like that. And the third thing was influencers or micro influencers. We would go to someone who was a big seller in the Amazon community, let's say Scott Volker, and we'd give him some credit to try out the free up platform. And if he liked it, he would also get access to the referral program and he would promote it to his audience, his students, his Facebook group, whatever it is. And that was a great way that we just had people talking about us at all times. So we had people talking about us because of the referral programs, wherever they went. We had people talking about, or we had the podcast that were just playing over and over and over and over. And then we had the influencers who every day were pushing us to their community. And that's really how we scaled free up. Everything else, our, our Instagram page, our Facebook and, and all that came much later. Now we have a budget for everything and we slowly scale each one up every quarter. But it, we really got off the ground just using those three free channels. So what was your approach to entering a fairly saturated marketplace, right? There are a number of companies in the freelancer virtual assistant platform space that are very well capitalized, have a lot of brand recognition. And when you were going to go in and approach that space, what was your strategy for differentiating yourselves and disrupting that industry? Yeah. And it's a good question. And, and the thing to keep in mind is none of the referral programs, none of the influencers, none of the podcast matters if we didn't have what we felt like was a really good product service that people that was different than what was out there. And the initial reaction we got from influencers was, oh, great, another freelancer platform. That, that's what we need. And, and it took a little while for, for people to, to give us a chance. But what we tried to do was create something, was take everything that we liked about the other platforms, because we thought they did some things well, and change everything that we didn't like. So our concept is we get thousands of applicants every week, virtual assistants, freelancers, agencies from all over the world. 
We vet them for skill, attitude, and communication, like I mentioned before, and only the top 1% get on our platform. So that's the first way that we're different. Anyone can go on Upwork, anyone can go on Fiverr, offer their services. We only accept one out of every 100. And once people are on our platform, we're very quick to remove them if they get client complaints, if they take on projects they can't do at a high level, if they're showing signs of a bad attitude, if they're not communicating, if we have to chase them or the clients do. So that's the first part. The second thing, which to me was the most important, is the speed. I didn't love going on platforms and browsing through 50 different people and trying to find the right one. I wanted someone sent to me that could get started right away. So with clients, they wouldn't browse. They would put in a request. We'd fill that request within a business day, usually faster. Clients could always ask for more options if they want it, but we're pretty good at getting it right on the first try if we have enough information. And right from there, the client can do a quick 5, 10, 15-minute interview, hire them, negotiate rate, agree to fix price, whatever they want to do and get started. So people would create an account, put in a request, and some clients were getting started with their freelancers within hours or minutes, which is really unheard of if you've used any of the other platforms. The back end, I'm all about customer service. I learned that from Firestone, the Firestone training. And my calendar is still at the top of the FreeUp website three years later. But I also have a team of people that monitor my Skype, monitor my email, monitor our live chat 24-7. We are not only client focused to make sure every client has a great experience and we're there if you have the smallest issue, but on the freelancer side too, because we know that freelancers can go anywhere to offer their services. There's no shortage of VA agencies or platforms. We want to create a community where the freelancers really like being there, where they could grow their freelance business, get the resources, get it get treated well if there was a dispute and, and be fair and try to resolve everything. And then the fourth thing, which really resonates with me is that no turnover guarantee. Turnover kills businesses. There's nothing worse than browsing through 50 people, spending two weeks interviewing someone, and then working with them for two weeks, a month, whatever it is, and then having them quit on you or having them disappear on you. And we have a no turnover guarantee. People on our platform rarely quit, but if they do, we cover replacement costs and get you a new person right away. So that's the four ways that we were able to differentiate from other platforms. And I think those four things, the pre-vetting, the speed, the customer service, and the protection really resonates with people out there. They've had experiences where they've gone through bad applicants on other platforms, or it took them too long to hire, or they, they had an issue and it wasn't solved quickly, and it cost them more time and more hassle, or they had someone quit on them. And I think those four things are why we've been able to stand out. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about the actual tasks that the virtual assistants or freelancers can perform when someone comes to the FreeUp platform and how you break those out? Yeah. So I like to divide it up into three levels. You've got basic, mid, and expert. So basic level freelancers, non-US, five to 10 bucks an hour. They might have years of experience because we're not a marketplace for newbies but they're followers. They're there to follow your systems, your processes. It could be sourcing products or customer service or, or lead generation. Then you've got the mid-level, the, the doers, maybe 10 to 30 bucks an hour, US or non-US. The, the graphic designers, bookkeepers, writers, you're not teaching a graphic designer how to be a graphic designer, but they're not consulting with you either. They're doers. They're there to do that one specific task that they do eight hours, 10 hours a day at a high level. And then you got the experts, the high-level freelancers, 
agencies, consultants that bring their own strategy to the table, their own expertise. It could be someone for Facebook ads or to manage an account or to build a, a website with, with great UI and UX. They can project manage, they can execute high-level game plans. So as an entrepreneur, you need to figure out what do you need in your business? Where are you at in your business? Are you someone that's stuck in the day-to-day operations and you need to get your time back, get more hours in the week, and you need to hire someone and teach them how to do your systems, your processes, so you can focus on higher level tasks? Are you someone that's the projects are just building up and they're too far outside of your core competency? You can't make every infographic, every logo. You can't update everything on zero and reconcile all your books. You need to hire specialists to get that stuff done. Or are you taking on something new? Let's say you want to run Facebook ads. You could spend the next six months taking courses and becoming a Facebook ad expert. At the end of the day, you can't do that with everything. And for the average entrepreneur, that's not a good use of your time. You need to hire an expert. So we really cater to all three, no matter where you're at in your business. And we have over 100 skill sets on the platform. Yeah, I can totally relate to those pain points as an entrepreneur, having run Maverick Investor Group for 12 years now. We have hired a number of people off of freelancing platforms, and we have definitely found a couple of good people. But in order to find a couple of good people, you have to go through a lot. So I totally relate to that. Uh, and, and that value that you guys have created makes absolute perfect sense to me as a business owner. So let me ask you this now, uh, just personally as an entrepreneur, can you talk a little bit about over the 10 years of business experience that you have, what are some of the biggest setbacks that you've experienced so far? What did you learn from them? And what is now your approach to handling and dealing with a business problem? Yeah. So I mentioned before, I'm a very logical person. So my problem solving skills, I I always follow the same pattern. First, you get all the information. Second, you look at what resources do you have? and what are the different options. Then you pick what option makes the most sense, that has the highest probability of success, and you execute that option using those resources. And then last, you put steps in place so that exact same thing doesn't happen again, which is where what a lot of entrepreneurs forget to do is that last step. So, I mean, a bunch of different things. One that really stands out to me is back in the day, right after I hired Connor, I had this idea that I could hire a manager of the day and I would teach him how to do all the day-to-day operations, the customer service, the listings, repricing everything. And I was pretty stressed out. I wasn't sleeping very well. And I thought, man, if I could just get one person to do everything, it would be great. So I found this one person and I taught him how to do everything. And it took months and months of training and really making sure he knew what he was doing. But when he was done, it was awesome. (laughs) I mean, I was sleeping better. The business was running without me. It was on autopilot. And on the flip side, I had this one manufacturer who was doing 85% of our sales. And I said, you know what? I don't care about these other this other 15%. Let's just focus on him. It's easier that way. And I get this business humming along to the point where I say, you know what, Connor? Let's, let's go on a vacation. We deserve a vacation. So we go to Myrtle Beach and I'll never go back. <laughs> on the first day of my vacation, I get three phone calls. The first call for my manager of the day quitting on me. So months and months of training down the drain. Second, from my supplier telling me that they no longer want to do business with me. So I have to start all over again. And third, from my accountant telling me that someone had filed a fake tax return in my name, had stolen my identity, and I was going to have to deal with that mess when I got back. <laughs> so I went from this unbelievable high to this 20, 21-year-old entrepreneur crushing it to 
let's start all over again. And I learned some very valuable lessons. And what I did was I came back and I said, how much money do we have in the bank account? We had some thousand dollars, probably like 20 grand. I said, okay, we need to hire people to contact lots of different manufacturers. The lesson we learned here is diversity actually matters. We put all our eggs in one basket. Now we're paying for it. Step one is we need to get new manufacturers. So we hired a team and we started contacting lots of different manufacturers. At one point, we were working with over 200 manufacturers and it wouldn't be the last manufacturer that dropped me, but the next time it wasn't that big of a deal because we were very diversified. Once we could hire again and we were making money again, we went back and we said, okay, let's not make that same hiring mistake again. Let's departmentalize. Let's hire a team for customer service, hire a team for listing, let's hire a team for repricing. So if one person quits, it doesn't take us six months to onboard them. We can just replace them for that specific team. And it wouldn't be the last person that quit on me. So that was a lesson that I learned. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs go through that. (laughs) They they make a bunch of bad hires and they finally find someone they like. So they load that person up with everything or just don't diversify their business in, in general, which can really hurt you long term. And, and I'm really happy I learned that lesson in year one and not in year five, six, seven. Obviously, and I know you know this, every entrepreneur has more than one struggle. So that was early on. Down the line, I opened up an office, which was one of the worst business decisions I ever made. I took this remote company where I pure flexibility, no overhead. And I tried to bring as many people as possible into the office. I still had an outside remote team in the Philippines, but everyone US was in an office. And I thought it would lead to better culture and better communication. And instead, it led to drama. It led to people who are used to working remote really hitting their job. It led to higher overhead. Personally, I felt like I created a nine to five job for myself, which was terrible. I felt like I had to wake up every day and and go into work. And and that was a struggle. And it was a terrible situation to break our lease and get out of it. Once we realized it was a bad decision, it cost a lot of money and we had paid for people to relocate. So they were devastated and that was a mess. And that was a a learning learning, um, situation. And then on the other side, more recently with, with FreeUp, when we first started FreeUp, we didn't really look at us as a software company. And it took us years to to really look at ourselves as that. And hiring developers has always been a personal weakness of mine. I mean, I'm a very logical person. I speak business. Developers tend not to do that. So it it took me a while to learn how to communicate with developers and ultimately make the decision to let Connor handle our dev team because he was better equipped dealing with that instead of having two business-minded owners working with the developers. So those are three situations that stand out. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Nathan, is that I know you identify as an introvert. And for all the other introverts out there, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about how you have developed the skills to do such effective business networking and to become the face of a company and do all of the podcasting and public speaking that you do. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I define an introvert as someone who gains energy by being alone opposed to someone who maybe gains energy by being around lots of people. So I almost feel like I can fake being an extrovert. <laughs> I can be the, the, I can do a bunch of podcasts all day. I can go to a conference and, and talk to people. But at the end of that, I'm exhausted. I definitely don't gain energy from it. And it's definitely not my natural comfort zone either. I mean, if you put me on a stage in front of 500 people, whatever it is, that, that's definitely not my natural place to be. 
for me, it's one of those things that I forced. I mean, with my Amazon business, I was behind the scenes for seven plus years. No one knew who I was. I wasn't active on social media. I was never doing any podcasts. I wasn't really networking that much. And I took a hard look and realized that that was holding me back, that I I had gone seven years as an entrepreneur, made a good amount of money, had a lot of success, but I, I had no network and no brand and nothing was there. So I made a, a dedicated effort to network with three new people every day, seven days a week. The first thing I do every morning is I reach out to three new entrepreneurs. With I'm not trying to sell them. I'm not trying to pitch them. I just want to talk to them. And that kind of made me a little bit more open to talking to people. And from there, getting on podcasts and being scared out of my mind and, and forcing my way through it made me a little bit more comfortable. And, and I kind of look at it something that, that's necessary. If you want to grow your brand, if you want to grow your business, you have to do it. So there's no secret formula. I put myself in uncomfortable situations and I try to figure it out as I go and get better and better. Awesome. I want to also ask you about your productivity tips and how you structure your workday to get so much done. Do you have morning routines, for example, and how do you basically structure your workday? Yeah, I'm definitely a morning person. So from 6.30 to 9 o'clock, that's my most productive time. It's when people aren't bothering me. I usually have a list of projects that, that I'm cranking out. That, that's the time I can get stuff done. From 9 o'clock to 4, 4.30, that's usually when I have stuff booked. So my calendar is usually booked about a week or, or two out, depending on, on what it is. And that's scheduled podcasts, scheduled partner meetings, business meetings, team meetings, all that stuff is very rigidly scheduled um, in my calendar. My calendar link is right at the top of our website. And then an important part of my day is 4.45 every day, I, I go to the gym. There's a gym right down the street called Hardcore Fitness. They have two types of classes. One is weights. The other one is cardio. And I alternate it up so that I'm getting that balance. And it's important for me to kind of get away from technology for an hour. I mean, if you see how much time I'm on my phone, I'm on my laptop, I feel like I'm going to go blind one day. But for me to, to put that stuff away and, and get rid of all the stress that I gained from the day and be able to take it out of the gym, that's been an important part for me to, to recharge. And then when I come home, my, my fiance is usually home by then. And, and then we can enjoy the rest of the night, depending on if I have a few phone calls or, or podcasts or whatever it is. But that hour to recharge is so important. Awesome. I also want to ask you, as a business owner, you're surely familiar with the concept of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And I want to ask when that entrepreneurial roller coaster goes down and you experience setbacks in highly stressful situations, what strategies and techniques do you have that you use for stress management, stress reduction? <laughs> it's funny. I feel like I'm at my best when I'm the most stressed. Not that I necessarily handle stress or I don't let things stress me out because I do. I think about them until I can solve them. But I, I definitely, my whole logical problem solving mentality really comes into play when things are, are not going the way that you want. And I almost look at my business partner, Connor, as 15% of my psychologist. I mean, he's the most calm, cool, collective person I've ever met. And there have been times where, where I'll be super stressed out. And my fiance, Quinn, she'll say, you need to go talk to Connor. <laughs> and I'll, I'll have a phone call with him. And by the end of that phone call, I, I'm back to even keeled and I'm relaxed and I'm ready to go. So he really has me just talk it out, lay out, lay out all the information, go through my, my normal problem solving skills. And I also feel like 
eight years into being an entrepreneur, you do get a little numb to the highs and the lows. When, when things are are going awesome, you never think you're on top of the world and invincible. You always know you're, you're one thing away from going down a few notches. And when things are going the way you want, you don't think, okay, I'm going to be homeless. You think, all right, there's a problem. We need to, to figure out a solution. So just that, that ability to stay even keeled and have a business partner that can keep me there whenever I get too up or, or too down has been incredibly important for me. Yeah, I totally hear you on that. And I couldn't agree more. My business partner, Valerie, plays a very similar role. She and I are the perfect complements to each other. And I could not agree more about the importance of picking the right business partner. All right, Nathan, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. What is one book that has really impacted you over the years that you would most recommend? So one of my favorite books is Start With Why, and it really resonates with me on a personal level. I mean, with my Amazon business, to be honest, there was just no why. I mean, I was in it for the money. I was in it to be an entrepreneur for the first time. I was pushing other people's products. I wasn't helping anyone else besides me and, and maybe my team and my manufacturers. And there, there, was no, there was no reason behind it. It was taking advantage of a great time to get into e-commerce. And that was fun for the first few years. It was exciting. It was new. It got old really fast. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about FreeUp is I get to help freelancers. I get to help clients and our partners. And I get to build my own brand and give back to the community. And And, and there's an actual purpose and a why behind my business. And I, I didn't realize that at the time. To me, I thought being an entrepreneur was all about how much money you can make. And it didn't matter how you did it as long as you did it. And that book really changed my mindset to figure out, hey, if I'm going to go out and start a second business, I can't be pushing baby products anymore. I need to figure out something that there's actually a passion and a why behind. And what is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd most recommend? So I just posted this on Facebook uh, yesterday, actually. So I challenge anyone to be faster than me on a phone. I'm super fast. I think it's a very underrated skill as an entrepreneur just because you're on your phone so much. But I use this tool called WordBoard, and it allows me to have my most common canned responses on my phone. So one thing that I do every day for five minutes is I text every client that signed up the day, the day before. I get an email from my assistant. It takes two minutes to do on my phone. But people have questions. They respond to those. And for me to have to type out every single answer would be crazy. I answer the same question a hundred times. So anything that I find myself saying over and over and over again, I quickly add to the word board. It becomes a key on my text and, and I can send stuff really quick. Same thing goes applies on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or Voxer or any other apps on my phone. So that over the course of a year, that saves me hours, probably days. If you could have dinner with one person could be an author, a celebrity, a public figure, anybody that's currently alive today that you've never met, who would you pick and why? Yeah. I mean, I have to go with uh, Jeff Bezos. I mean, I know that's a common answer, but I, I got into the Amazon space when it was just starting. I mean, I, I, I feel like I saw it right as it was starting to hit that tipping point and, and go and accelerate. So for me to, to learn about the behind the scenes stories and, and all the stuff that happened while I was kind of watching my business grow from my end and all the changes that, that I was seeing, I feel like that would be a fascinating conversation. I'm not sure meeting anyone else would, would give me that, that behind the scenes look that that dinner could have. Yeah. And he's a pretty tough guy to get access to. So that would be pretty amazing. Okay. Final question, Nathan, knowing everything that you know now, 
If you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Nathan? (laughs) I I would focus on customer service and focus on relationships. I mean, any business in the world, whether you're selling insurance, whether you're running an e-commerce business, whether you're a freelancer marketplace, an agency, if you can't find a way to build relationships with people... Nothing else matters. It's very tough to build a business without doing that. These relationships are going to lead to so many opportunities that you can't even imagine from, from podcasts and interviews to just introductions to, to new clients or, or partners or, or friends for, for life. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that if I could go back that first seven years, I would have done that completely differently. Uh, having a, a much stronger network than I have now. And I feel like I, I have a pretty good network. And for, for me, if you're listening out there and you're getting started in business, start growing your network early. If you want, steal my idea and network with three new people or two new people every day. Start building that foundation and getting to know people on a personal level. And that's going to lead to some amazing opportunities. That's awesome advice. All right, Nathan, at this point, I want you to let people know how they can get a hold of you, how they can follow you on social media, how they can learn more about FreeUp. Yeah. So if you go to freeup.com with three E's, my calendar is right at the top. If you want to book a meeting with me, you can also check out my podcast, The Outsourcing and Scaling Show, and join my Facebook group, Outsourcing Masters. And if you go to freeup.com slash Maverick Show, you get a free $50 credit to try FreeUp out. And we'd love to be a resource for you to help you scale your business remotely. Awesome. We are going to put that link in the show notes at themaverickshow.com. So you can just go there and everything we talked about in this episode, Nathan's book recommendation, app recommendation, all the things that were referenced here, as well as your link that's going to get you the $50 discount at FreeUp. That's all going to be in one place. Just go to themaverickshow.com and it'll be right in the show notes for this episode episode. Nathan, thank you so much for being here today, my man. This was awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes real estate investors are making in today's market? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash avoid mistakes. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash avoid mistakes. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.